Good morning. Welcome to our 11 o'clock worship service. I'm Pastor Stephen of Calvary Baptist Church here in Phillipsburg, Kansas. Uh, This morning we are going to uh, look at 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 through 5. And the scripture reads, Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. According to scripture, the Christian's inheritance, what we are to inherit in the future, exists now. Uh, It exists right now. Uh, God has it for us. Uh, He is keeping it safe. Uh, Nothing from this world can corrupt it. Uh, There is no power of darkness that can Uh, uh, take it from us, it is being kept, it is being guarded by God's power. But that isn't all. According to Peter, God is also guarding us so that we in the future can obtain this inheritance. Peter is very specific with his language. Uh, he wants to his uh, he wants his recipients not to have any doubts. He's not using muddled language here. Although the recipients of this letter, they are experiencing turmoil. They are being harassed. They have many perils. Peter says they should also have a great confidence, a great hope that one day they will leave this world and they'll be ushered in into another world where waiting for them is a great inheritance. Uh, Peter first mentions this inheritance in verse four, but it doesn't tell us what it actually is. He only says that this inheritance is imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, and it's waiting for us, not here on earth, but it's waiting for us in heaven. At the end of verse 5, Peter finally reveals what this great inheritance is, and he says it's salvation. He says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for, say, salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Uh, 
So what we are waiting to possess is salvation. But wait a minute. I thought uh, Christians are saved once we come to a saving faith, once we come to a saving knowledge of Christ, once we believe in Christ. And that's true. We are saved. But that salvation is a down payment sort of way. What I mean by that is, yes, we are saved, will be nothing but saved, but the reality of our salvation isn't fully experienced until a time in the future that God has set. And that's the salvation that Peter is referring to. As we study this passage this morning, it's important for us to remember and to keep being reminded of what the context is. Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are experiencing intense persecution. They have been expelled from their homes. Uh, they have nearly lost all of their possessions. And some of them have been executed for their faith. And the purpose of this letter is to encourage them. That's Peter's intention. His intention is to encourage the Christians who are suffering in this world, who are on the verge of perhaps even losing hope. Uh, their reality uh, is, is hopeless right now. So Peter encourages them that a major event is going to happen in the future. Major event in our lives. And we will experience this major event. But we have to wait for it. Oh, Peter, I don't think I can hold on. Peter says, you will because you're being kept by God. Not only is this future reward being guarded by God, you, you are being guarded by God as well. Now, this isn't the only time in Peter's letter that he references an end time event. Uh, there's an anticipation by Peter uh, that a, a future time is coming where God would not only save us, he'll not only rescue us, but he'll also judge unbelievers. He'll bring this world to an end. He'll replace this world with a new heaven and a new earth. I want you to pay attention to these verses and see if you can point out the end time references. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. He says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Has an end time feel to it, don't it? At some point in the future, like you keep your conduct before Gentiles pure now, because at some point in the future, a day of salvation will visit them. First Peter chapter four verse seven: The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled. 
and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Drop down to verse 17 and 18 of chapter 4. Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and it begins with us. What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Again, a future date of something happening to the church and to unbelievers, something happening in their lives. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Chapter 5, verse 10, Peter says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Those are some end-time references. All of them are. Peter is looking forward to the last stage, the very last events that will take place in the world. And for Peter, they begin at the second coming of Christ. When will the end times commence? When will God draw a close to this world? At the end, at the second coming of Christ. Uh, typically, when we think of salvation, uh, we, uh, we think of the time that we made a profession of faith. Our conversion, right? And, and that's true. It, salvation does include our conversion, but there are other aspects to salvation as well. Salvation includes our election when God chose us to be saved before the foundation of the world. The Holy Spirit calling us, being justified, being adopted into God's family. Our sanctification is included in salvation, our glorification, when the old body is done away with and we enter heaven with a new body. And each of these parts of salvation have another corresponding part to them. Take sanctification, for example. Sanctification is included in the process of our salvation. But there's also categories of sanctification, God transforming us to the image of his son, destroying sin, creating in us new desires, destroying old desires, building up the new man, preserving us, keeping us from falling away, keeping us from idolatry, keeping us from apostasy. All that's involved in sanctification. Again, when we think about sanctification, we just think about, oh, well, you know, I'm living this life and I'm becoming more holy and, and eventually God will receive me up into heaven. Man, there's more to sanctification than just that. The point of sanctification is to be a bridge from the moment that we are justified by faith adopted into God's family, converted. Sanctification is a bridge to get that man, that person, to heaven, to bring him to the end of salvation. 
So we see that salvation is this long process in our life, and, and each aspect will be experienced by the Christian. When Peter addresses our salvation uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, he's referring to the final stage of our salvation. Uh, when pastors preach on glorification, they typically address the resurrected bodies. But again, glorification is more than just that. It involves the return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, the rapture, Jesus destroying his enemies, the final judgment of all creatures. Our glorifications in, includes the things that we'll do for eternity, such as eat with the Lord, dine with the Lord, uh, worship the Lord. We receive our heavenly rewards. The creation of the new heaven and the new earth takes place. Peter is preparing the church here in his letter to receive the final stage of salvation. The church is experiencing heavy persecution. And their only hope is to be rescued from the world. And Peter's intention with this letter is to encourage them. And don't you think Peter has some experience in this matter? Don't you think Peter has relevant information for the church when it comes to tribulation and persecution and uh, preparing your heart to be uh, taken from this world? In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus uh, is leaving the temple with his disciples, including Peter. Peter's there. And they, they turn to the temple and say, Lord, look at look all these beautiful things here. And Jesus says to his disciples, what you see now is not going to be here in the future. This is going to be destroyed. They head to the Mount of Olives, and once they get there, the disciples, again, Peter's still there, says to Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the end of the age? So the apostles connect Jesus' return with the end of the age. They don't believe Jesus is going to come back and then there's a period of more suffering, a period of tribulation. The disciples believe that when Jesus returns, he's going to put an end to all these things. And they ask him, when will be the end of all these things? And Jesus tells them. He says in verses 4 through 8 of Matthew chapter 24 that the beginning of all these things, what commences the return of Christ is the rumors of wars and actual wars. He says nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. But Jesus encourages the disciples, the end is not yet. This is only the beginning and then Jesus says, a time of persecution will come against the church. He says his disciples will be given up to tribulation and put to death. During this time, 
false disciples, those who only have given a profession of faith, but they truly haven't believed that during this time, those disciples, those false disciples, they will fall away. They will even betray Christians, Jesus says. They will help the world persecute you. Jesus says false prophets will come. Lawlessness will increase. Love will decrease. And Jesus says in Matthew 24, 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's similar to what Peter is talking about. He's telling the church, yes, you're experiencing these times of suffering and persecution. Yes, this is times of falling away and and false disciples will fall away. People who've merely only made a profession of faith, but they truly haven't believed. Yeah, they'll fall away. But not so with you. The true church will be kept guarded by God. He will shield you. And Jesus says, just like Peter, what is the end of all this? Your salvation. In Matthew 24, verses 15 through 28, Jesus reveals even more tribulation, greater than the previous Uh, The prophecies of Daniel will come true. The world will suffer through total chaos. Even false Christ will be raised up. They will deceive more people. But Jesus tells us, don't be fooled. Be ready, but don't be fooled. In verse 21, Jesus calls this time the great tribulation. But notice the church is still there. Are Christians being persecuted? Are they being put to death? Yeah, but they're not raptured yet. No graves have opened up. No one has been caught up in the sky. Jesus hasn't made an appearance. I remember two years ago in our church, we we had a segment called Ask the Pastor. and I really enjoyed it. I, I thought it was pretty fun. The questions were normal, typical questions, but there were some uh, you know, difficult ones as well. Uh, one of those questions uh, was uh, if I believed in a rapture. And the reason why they asked that because the former pastor believed in a rapture. It was actually in the bylaws. We actually changed our bylaws in the past year. And we changed this part of the bylaws where the church does not believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Why? Because Jesus didn't teach it. And I remember walking through Matthew chapter 24 and the gospel of Mark and the end of the gospel of Luke because all three gospels uh, talk about the end times. Jesus gives the speech. And after I explained to them uh, that Jesus didn't speak of a rapture before his second coming, the church was like, what? Oh, yeah. Listen to me, church. And, and, and if you know someone who believes in a pre-tribulation rapture, that Jesus will come back and rescue his church before the tribulation, send them this podcast. 
and have them read Matthew chapter 24 and the corresponding verses in the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which we'll get to in a little bit. But Jesus and the apostles did not anticipate the church being saved before the tribulation. Jesus and the apostles taught that the church experiences the tribulation. And, and that's the context of 1 Peter, right? They're experiencing suffering. They're experiencing persecution. But Peter's telling them to endure. Persevere. And they shouldn't have any fear of not persevering. Why? Because God is keeping guard over them. God is shielding them. He is preserving them so that they one day will come into possession of their future inheritance. What is it? Being saved from everything. Experiencing in real time all of the realities of salvation. Matthew 24, Jesus continues in verses 29 through 31. Listen to these words. Immediately after the tribulation... Immediately after the tribulation, what happens? Jesus says there'll be several cosmic phenomena and then the Son of Man will return. Notice how he says the Son of Man returns after the tribulation. And in verse 31, Jesus says, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. When does Jesus return? When is the church raptured? When does a trumpet sound occur? After the tribulation. And that is when the church is rescued from the world. Again, back to 1 Peter chapter 1. What is the contents? The church suffering through tri tribulation. And what's Peter's encouragement? That endure. To endure. That's their encouragement. To endure. Yeah, you're being threatened. Yeah, you're being persecuted. And even some of you are being executed. But Peter says soon. Soon. You will leave this world. Christ will return. He will come back with a loud trumpet call. The dead in Christ will be raised up. Those who are alive will be caught up with them and will always be with Jesus forever. He'll take us into heaven. He'll destroy unbelievers from the earth. He will resurrect them from the dead. He will judge them in heaven. He will consign them to hell for the rest of eternity. He will have his marriage supper with us. We will dine and eat of the bread and drink of the wine with the true lamb of God. We'll receive our rewards. We will receive our inheritance. The new heavens and the new earth will be created. The old ones will be destroyed. And that's what will be forever with God. That is the hope of the church. Even 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, Paul says the same thing. He's in total agreement with Jesus and with Peter. He tells the church, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, 
that you may grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Did you get that? Those who are dead, those Christians who have died, when Jesus returns, Paul says the souls of those believers who died return with him. What's the purpose? Those souls re-enter those bodies because those bodies come up out of the ground. The souls re-enter them. They're a brand new person. The Christians who are alive, Paul says, will be caught up in the air with them because Jesus is going to return. He's going to descend from heaven with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first, Those who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And Paul says, encourage one another with these words. There is life after death. What we experience here on earth is not the end. Our great hope is still waiting for us. This is... This is not it. This is, this is not the culmination of the Christian life. Paul says it's the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says in verse 24, after uh, Christ resurrects from the dead, he returns. When he returns, those who are dead are raised up. Those who are alive meet them in the air. And he says, the end comes. He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So technically, technically, the clock begins. When does the end time clock begin? At the resurrection of Christ. That's when it begins. When it ends, at some time in the future when Christ returns, but it actually begins with the resurrection. That's when it commences. Jesus tells his disciples after his resurrection, all authority, all power is being given unto me. They ask him in Acts chapter 1, because you've resurrected, are you now going to restore the kingdom back to Israel? He says, not yet, but it has begun. The process of doing it begins now. The end is not to the future, but the process begins now. First Peter chapter 1. He's riding to a group of Christians who are being heavily persecuted. They didn't know when Jesus would return. Some of them even lost hope that he would. And so they needed an encouragement. Peter writes them a letter so that when a church gathers together and they read this letter in that assembly, 
and they read that the apostle tells them, your salvation draws near more and more each day. You just endure. You hold on. You keep the faith. You have a hope. And boy, it is a living hope. This salvation is being guarded and being kept by God. You will receive it. And so they encouraged one another with the words of this letter. And doesn't that sound familiar? The church gathering together to encourage one another. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Even the author of Hebrews points to a day when the hope and the salvation of the church will be realized. And that day is the day of the Lord, is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, he'll put an end to all this suffering. He will destroy all unbelievers. All of our enemies will fall and be broken. They will be judged. This world will be disappeared. The new heaven and the new earth will come. We will receive our inheritance. We will receive our rewards. We will have dinner with the Lord. We'll always be with him forever. That day is coming. And we are to encourage one another. That's one of the reasons why we get together. Can you imagine the church 1 Peter chapter 1, they're heavily persecuted. Some of them are being executed. Can you imagine if they never met together? If they never gathered together as a body of people, what would, their, what would they be like? Oh, a, a pitiful people. They would be pitiful. But that's one of the reasons why we gather together. Because of the suffering that we endure in the world, we need encouragement, we need hope, and we get it from each other. The Christian who claims I can worship God at home, he is a liar and a false Christian. Well, it's just me and my family here on Sunday mornings, and it will be you and your family in hell. The last thing that I want to address today is the power of God. Peter tells us that it is the power of God which guards us and also guards over our inheritance. Like all of God's attributes, his power is regulated by his infiniteness. Since God is infinite, everything about him is infinite. Since God is infinite, he is holy to the infinite degree. Therefore, God is not just holy, but he is holiness. Since God is infinite, his presence is to the infinite degree. Therefore, God is omnipresent. And since God is infinite, his power is to the infinite degree. Therefore, God is omnipotent. And without omnipotence, God isn't worthy of worship. Why would anyone worship a weak God? 
A God who can be overpowered. A God who can't shepherd them because he's overthrown. A God who can't uh, uh, practice uh, his power over them because someone comes in and usurps that of power from him. A weak God doesn't exist. It can't exist. It's a contradiction. But since God is omnipotent, he possesses unlimited power. God is so powerful that it's even his name. In Mark 14, when Jesus appears before the high priest and the high priest asked him several questions. And one of the questions was, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. God is so powerful that it's even his name. You know, imagine if your name was your attribute. Stephen the Annoying, right? Stephen, the guy who can't use proper noun verb agreement. That would be my name. That's who I am. Stephen the Sinner. That would be my name. God's name is powerful, therefore his name is power. Are you the Christ? Jesus says, I am, and you will see me seated at the right hand of power. That's capitalized. It's a proper name. Jesus calls his God power. And since God is power and his power is unlimited, there's no work that's too hard for him. The scripture says God created all things. And it was just as easy for God to create a pebble as it was to create the sun. It was nothing, no energy spent. The power of his creatures pales in comparison to his power. The scripture says with man, it is impossible. <laughs> We're powerless, but nothing is impossible for God. He's stronger than all of his enemies. He's able to command the winds and the seas and they obey him. He has the power over sin and death. Anybody else got that kind of power? When we talk about God's power, we're either talking about his authority or his strength. His authority or his strength. God has both. He has unlimited authority and he has unlimited strength because he's omnipotent. Nobody else has both. Now, some may have one or the other, but we don't have both. Some men may be in positions of authority, but they have no strength. There may be men who possess all strength, but they have no authority. God has both. And he exercises both at all times. By his power, he brings to pass whatever he wants. And by his strength, he preserves whatever he wants. In his book, The Existence in the Attributes of God, Stephen Charnock says, God's power is like himself, infinite, eternal, incomprehensible. It can neither be checked, restrained, nor frustrated by the creature. Absolute power. There is no limit to the Almighty. 
And according to Peter, this is the God who guards both us and our inheritance. Peter says in verse five, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation. That term guarded means shielded. When the Bible uses this word guarded or shielded in the scripture, it usually describes putting a garrison in place to protect a city from their foes or from a flood. And especially in, in the in like first, second Samuel, first, second Kings or first, second Chronicles, uh, Israel usually has garrisons. Garrisons are strongholds and they protect, they shield. How does God shield us? Obviously, he doesn't shield us from suffering. He doesn't shield us from persecution. And, and here's something real quick. If, if you don't experience turmoil, if you're not experiencing adversity in this world, you get everything that you want. Everything for you is good. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. Man, I, I, I'm doing so good. I, I, I could be twins, right? That's, that's not good. That's, that's, that's bad. The people of God go through adversity. We go through turmoil. And, and not because we sin either, right? We're not talking about the turmoil that sin causes. We're talking about the turmoil and adversity that comes to us because we're holy. Because the world hates us. There are people who are suffering because they committed a sin. Right, A man who commits adultery against his wife, he's going to experience some turmoil in this life. We're not talking about that. We're talking about suffering because you're doing good. Suffering because you're obeying God. Not many experience that. And if you're one of those that don't experience that kind of turmoil, I would be concerned. So God doesn't shield us from suffering. Right? The church experiences both physical pain and psychological pain. So how are we shielded? This is how. God guards us from falling into idolatry. God guards us from falling into apostasy. During times of persecution, what will the biggest threat be for the church? Not a sword, but apostasy. Not execution, but unbelief. That's the biggest threat. The biggest threat to us is not dying. The biggest threat to us is losing the faith. Being tempted to sin against God. Being tempted to fall away. Being tempted to apostatize. That's the biggest threat. The biggest threat's not made against the body. It's made against the soul. And that's what God's guarding. He guards the person's faith by keeping you faithful. Look at what Peter says. He says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation. God doesn't guard us by placing us on a hill far away from all the enemies, by keeping us away from all that stuff. No, God guards us 
by keeping our faith strong so that we can endure all that stuff. He keeps the fire burning inside of you. When threats of leaving the faith present itself to you, God keeps you faithful. He shields you from apostasy. He shields you from unbelief. He guards you from falling away. Your foot does not slip. No one can pluck you from his hand. Thank you for listening. Uh, If you enjoyed uh, the sermon today, uh, like the sermon, um, share it, subscribe to our our channel. Uh, There's a comment box here. Uh, We appreciate your feedback. Uh, God bless you and we'll see you uh, next Sunday.